This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Austin Harriff? So first I'll look at the background, I'll move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. Austin Harriff was born in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida on December 21, 1996. He had a younger sister. His parents divorced in 2013, but had been separated before that. Austin reported that his parents argued frequently. There was a lot of yelling and screaming. Austin graduated from Suncoast High School in 2015. He was not very popular in high school, but became more popular as he became involved in athletics. He attended Palm Beach State College the summer after he graduated from high school and then enrolled in Florida State University, where he majored in biology. Austin used substances in high school and college. In July of 2016, he started working as a dental assistant. Now moving to the timeline of the crime, we move to August 15, 2016, in Jupiter, Florida. Austin Harriff approaches the residence of 59-year-old John Stevens and 53-year-old Michelle Miskin. He attacks them in their garage, stabbing them with a knife and beating them viciously. A neighbor named Jeffrey Fisher comes over to intervene after hearing Michelle screaming. Austin attacks Jeffrey, stabbing him several times. The police arrive to find Austin on top of John. Austin was eating his face and chest. The police tried several methods to take Austin into custody. They used a taser, a police dog, they tried to wrestle with him, they kicked him. Eventually, they were able to handcuff him. John and Michelle died at the scene. Jeffrey was injured but survived. Austin sustained injuries as well, including from some type of chemical that he drank during the crime. He found something in the garage, perhaps a solvent of some type. Tests performed after the attack showed that Austin had alcohol and THC in his system. Austin was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and burglary. At the time making this video, he has not yet faced trial. His sanity has been called into question. Now moving to my analysis. As far as the mental health factors, let's first take a look at a mental health assessment, which was performed in October of 2019. The clinician who performed the evaluation met with Austin for five hours and performed a number of tests. At the time of the assessment, Austin was being treated for schizophrenia in jail and had feelings of depression. He also had a history of substance use. In the summer of 2016, Austin reported that he began to feel go, go, go and had grandiosity, heightened self-importance, increased religiosity, and paranoia. He started looking into philosophy. Austin claimed to hear God's voice and experienced what he referred to as demonic things. The clinician reported that Austin was oriented with respect to person, place, time, and situation. He denied homicidal or suicidal ideation, denied hallucinations. He was highly verbal. His speech was not pressured. His thoughts were goal-directed. He was spontaneously conversant. He seemed to enjoy the attention of the interview. Austin did not exhibit bizarre or unusual mannerisms. 
He offered no indication of responding to internal stimuli. That's when people are psychotic and they're hearing voices and they talk back to the voices. And he did not appear to be malingering. That is, he didn't seem to be faking his symptoms. One of the tests administered was the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory 3, which is a test that reveals information about psychopathology and personality. It is typically used to aid in diagnosis. Austin appeared to score in a similar manner to those with anxiety disorder. His personality also had dependent and non-competitive features. As far as the events leading up to August 15, 2016, the day of the homicides, Austin reported the events in a way consistent with other sources, so he did not appear to be lying or exaggerating. Here's what Austin said happened in the days preceding the homicides. One week before the homicides, Austin started feeling extra generous. He wanted to give to others. He also had feelings of paranoia, sleep paralysis, and felt as though a demon was over him and harassing him. He said his friends were, quote, weirded out because I was changing. On August 12th, three days before the homicides, Austin was at work at the dentist office. He talked to patients about God and said he felt like Jesus. He had feelings of love, peace, and joy. He blessed the instruments by praying and pouring water over them. There were themes of God evident in the radio, which was playing in the background. When he arrived home from work, he saw the devil and flushed his drugs down the toilet. He spent the night at a friend's house where he continued to feel paranoid and did not sleep. Moving to August 13, Austin was feeling lethargic and as though he had a special connection with animals. Austin went to a restaurant. He felt as though God was talking to him, explaining how the water there was the fountain of youth. Later in the day, he felt as though a force field was protecting him. He was given a ride by someone who was driving a Dodge pickup truck. He looked at the ram symbol. He felt as though it was the devil looking at him. That night, Austin slept in his sister's room. He kept his dog with him for protection. It's not clear what he thought his dog would do against a demon, like how it would protect him. Maybe his canine was a demon-sniffing dog. On August 14, the day before the homicide, Austin took his dog for a walk. Austin started running and felt like a half-dog, half person. He thought that dog spirits were part of him, giving him strength and agility. Once again, he felt a special connection to animals. He then went with his father to a gun show. He felt paranoid while he was there. He purchased a machete, and other reports is referred to as a knife. Either way, it would be the murder weapon. He believed that if he ate a snake, it would give him power over the devil. Now moving to the day of the homicides, August 15, Austin believed that dog spirits told him to put on a Michael Vick jersey, which he did. This made him invincible. He felt like the Terminator. Michael Vick is a disgraced football player who was convicted of federal crimes in connection with running a dog fighting enterprise. One would think that dog spirits would not be big fans of Michael Vick. Austin went to the beach, a party at a house of a fraternity brother, and a restaurant. He left the restaurant, went to his mother's house, and drank cooking oil. Then he returned to the restaurant, only to storm out not long after. He felt super hyper. He denied any alcohol or drug use that day. So like at the party, he didn't drink or use drugs. Austin felt like the Grim Reaper, 
and as though time was standing still, he heard voices saying, I am sin, I am in control. He followed the stars and ran to the residence of his victims. He saw a figure which frightened him. It had a white face and black clothes. He ran toward the light, which, as it turns out, was the light in the garage of the victims. He stabbed Michelle. He said it was like she was covered in darkness. He saw a man who was glowing white. He stabbed the man with the machete. Austin blacked out. The next thing he remembered was waking up in the hospital. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. The mental health clinician concluded that Austin was experiencing a decompensated mental state associated with emerging mood and thought disorder. This resulted in an acute psychotic episode. Austin was unable to distinguish right from wrong. This means Austin would be considered insane under the definition used in the state of Florida. There's other information regarding Austin outside of this one particular mental health assessment, including a list of internet searches that happened in the days and weeks prior to the homicide. Here are a few examples of his searches on the internet. How to relax my mind, auditory hallucinations when falling asleep, what exactly is hell? At one point he searched for something about Adam and Eve, and he wanted to know how to sell his soul to the devil. Getting closer to the murders, he searched for terms and phrases like, must I sleep? I think I'm going crazy. Am I? What am I? How to know if you're going crazy? Can we really control more than we think? What is white magic? Hearing things in my sleep and obsessive thoughts. With all this in mind, the question becomes, was Austin really having an acute psychotic episode or was he malingering? I guess it's also possible that there was a little bit of both going on, like he was exaggerating his symptoms. So he had some level of psychosis, but still wanted to commit murders and understood that he was committing murders. It seems clear that the mental health clinicians believe that Austin was truly psychotic that he was not malingering, and that he was not responsible for what he did. That is, there was no intent, no mens rea, no criminal state of mind. The problem is, mental health professionals do not have a great track record for detecting malingering. We see many examples where they have been tricked by defendants. For example, Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler, tricked a clinician by pretending to have 
multiple personalities. He almost got away with it. Determinations about malingering are often made based on the nature of the crime. For example, how organized was the killer and was there any motive? As far as psychopathology, clinicians look for symptom profiles that are consistent with how symptoms tend to present in the population. For example, some symptoms usually don't appear together. They are not likely to be comorbid. So if a client reports having both symptoms, that's indicative of malingering. Some tests that are used to measure psychopathology and personality include what are referred to as response distortion scales. These scales contain items that are meant to detect if somebody is faking bad, faking good, randomly answering questions, and things like that. In theory, elevated scores on these scales could indicate somebody is malingering. These scales offer value above and beyond just interviewing someone or looking at the facts of the case. So back to that question, what could have been going on in this case? Well, here's my theory. Of course, I don't know. The clinicians who met with Austin would be in a much better position to determine his mental state. I believe that Austin is probably telling the truth. His behavior appears to be consistent with psychosis based on the information that's available. Here are the factors that led me to this conclusion. Austin had no criminal record. His behavior was noticed as irregular by people around him in the weeks preceding the crime. For example, his sister was locking her bedroom door at night because she was afraid of him. So other people were clearly seeing something drastic changing in his personality and behavior. Austin's reports like seeing devil faces, feeling connected to animals, believing he was invincible, hearing voices, and paranoia are all consistent with psychosis. Some of the symptoms seem consistent with mania as well, like feeling invincible. Mania was never mentioned in the report, but depression was. It could be that Austin has something like schizoaffective disorder, which is like schizophrenia combined with a major mood episode. Austin had no motive to commit the homicides. He did not have anything against his neighbors. He didn't try to steal anything. He made no effort to get away with his crime. Sex was not involved in any way. His internet searches revealed that he was struggling with a lot of new feelings and questions about his thought processes, like he was trying to figure things out. He was being presented with new information, probably from an internal source, and really confused about what to make of it. He was trying to find answers. In a way, he was trying to adapt. Austin reportedly had near superhuman strength. This is not something that can be faked easily. Most people respond to pain, like being hit with a taser or being kicked repeatedly by police officers. Austin was remorseful. He regretted his actions. His remorse seemed genuine, although of course there's no way to know. There is no evidence that he made any effort to learn anything about mental health, like in order to malinger convincingly. So we don't see in his internet searches, for example, that he was searching for psychosis. He was searching for ways to defeat mental health clinicians trying to detect malingering, nothing like that. He did make that one search about hallucinations, but it really seemed like he was just trying to find out what was going on with himself. Last question here is, what is first break psychosis? The mental health assessment never specifically stated the term first break, but it's implied due to the fact that Austin did not have a significant mental health history. First break psychosis is usually used in reference to schizophrenia. It is the first time somebody with schizophrenia has 
hallucinations, and or delusions. It's considered a particularly dangerous time relative to other points on the continuum of the illness, but it's also an opportunity. Early intervention is crucial with schizophrenia, so it's important the symptoms are identified as soon as possible. At the heart of detection is understanding what's called the prodromal phase or prodromal period. This phase features non-psychotic symptoms, which occur before the primary symptoms of schizophrenia. So we're looking at non-affective psychosis here. The symptoms usually last about one or two years. So there is a good amount of time available where these prodromal symptoms could be identified. Before I get started with the list of symptoms, it's important to recognize that many of the symptoms overlap with other disorders. So having a few of the symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is in the prodromal phase of schizophrenia. It could mean nothing, or it could be pointing to some other disorder or disorders. Here are some of the symptoms of the prodromal phase. Feeling that something strange or inexplicable is taking place in oneself, one's behavior, one's environment. Having peculiar or weird thoughts, behaviors, or feelings. Feeling better alone, like avoiding people to spend time alone. Feeling euphoric, especially if that euphoria features grandiosity. Believing that one is being influenced in some special way or being tracked or followed. Visual or auditory oversensitivity. Believing that various events in one's environment specifically concern oneself, kind of like an idea of reference. The sense that one's thoughts are out of control or racing. Trouble making decisions, trouble concentrating, anxiety, sleep problems, restlessness, and trouble coping with stress. Now, some people say, why worry about detecting schizophrenia early? Doesn't a person essentially have to wait until they have a full-blown manifestation of the illness to get treatment? Interestingly, schizophrenia can be treated quite effectively in the prodromal phase. A person does not have to wait for more severe symptoms to manifest. It's actually highly preferable to treat schizophrenia before the symptoms become more pronounced. What lessons can be learned in this case? Like any homicide, people look for someone to blame. But in this case, it appears as though mental illness is to blame. I think the lesson learned is that intervention should occur as soon as possible when symptoms are detected. It doesn't always mean there will be a serious illness there, but symptoms typically point to some problem or condition that can be addressed through mental health treatment. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris.
and I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. 